Hello, everyone. My name is David McPeak. Welcome to this very special edition of Frontline Fundamentals. For those of you that aren't familiar with Frontline Fundamentals, it's a regular column that we have in IP Magazine, which is published every other month. And then based on that article, we have uh, today's session focused on the, the contents of that article. And the last article in Frontline Fundamentals, we're in the middle of a series right now called From My Bookshelf to Yours. And we've been talking about some books. And today, I'm really excited. And I call this a very special episode of Frontline Fundamentals because uh, the book that we're focusing on is called The Eight Habits of a Highly Effective Safety Culture. And it's written by Rod Courtney. And we've got Rod Courtney with us to talk about his book. So I am super, super, super excited to have him with us. Uh, hear what he's got to say about the book and, and welcome any comments that, that anyone else has as well. So, Rod, thank you for being with us today. Hey, my pleasure, guys. Uh, thank you all so much for taking time out of your day to come listen to me talk. Um, you know, you, I'm sure some of you have had plenty of chances to hear me run my mouth at the conferences and stuff. So I, I really appreciate you guys. Well, we certainly appreciate you being here. So let's just start. Uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, like I said, my name's Rod Courtney. I um, was born and raised in South Louisiana. Uh, I went, uh, after high school, I went into the military. I spent eight years as an Army combat medic. Um, when I came off of active duty, I went into law enforcement for a little while. I got a chance to work the Olympics in Atlanta back in 96, which was really cool. Uh, I was a patrol officer for a little while. Uh, long story short, I, I moved back home to Louisiana uh, after being gone, I don't know, roughly 10 years and um, ended up in occupation. It was an accident. It honestly was uh, to end up in the profession, but I did. And um, I, I realized it was a calling. This is absolutely, without a doubt, what I was meant to do. Um, and that was back in 1997. So I've been doing this ever since. I've, I've been very fortunate to be able to travel all over the world, um, 18 different countries, you know, for work, uh, plus every state in the United States except Alaska. And originally that was by design. Uh, I'm not one that likes cold, um, but I did spend a few winters in North Dakota and it can't get any worse than that, I promise you. So um, I, I do plan to get up there eventually, but I, I've been doing it for a long time. And, and I, um, I started the book, I was the, HSE manager for a project called the Lawcat 3 project in Iraq. Uh, Halliburton or KBR at the time uh, was given the project and I was one of their uh, area HSE managers. And um, so the, the actual writing of this book started in 2004. So it's, it's 18 years ago. And, um, you know, in the first part of the book, I, I say this, but, you know, a very, very special thanks to David for uh, lighting a fire under my butt, because this, this is one of those things. If you've ever written a book, you know, it, you know, some you can start it, get some good information, and then you stop, and it goes on the back burner, back and forth. And I did that for you know, better part of seventeen years. And then David wrote his uh, his first book, the uh, um, his first frontline series book, and uh, it just lit a fire under me to to get it done. And I sent it to the publisher back in February, and it finally hit. Um, Amazon a little over a week ago. Well, very good, very good. Yeah, uh, the best thing come, best things come to those who wait, right? Yeah, right. We've been waiting since two thousand four. It's at least in my opinion worth the wait, and uh, 
It's funny you say that. I, I don't know that I've ever actually met anybody that volunteered to go into safety. Uh, I'm sure there are some, but most folks somehow, as you said, accidentally or get volunteered into it. But um, so what motivated you then to start writing the book? So in, in the beginning, it was. Um, I'm, I'm one of those geeks that like to read. Um, and, and usually I like to read stuff that's going to help me become better at something, whatever that might be. In this case, uh, back then, I was I had read a couple of times and was reading The Seven Habits from Stephen Covey. Um, and with that in the back of my mind, we, we had a lot of issues in Iraq, as you can imagine, right? So from the turnover of our own employees that we had, you, know, you go spend a week or 10 days in Houston to process and then they fly you over. And we literally had people get off the plane on the tarmac, turn around and get right back on the plane and say, nope, I'm going home. And they left. So we, we, we had a massive turnover. And a lot of times people, you know, they have this um, uh, vision of what it's like. And when they get over there, they're like, nope, you're going to sleep in that tent over there. Uh, air condition, what's that? Um, we, we had a big turnover. So I learned a lot about that. But when they started, when we started actually building this project, uh, we had to use local uh, labor as, as best we could anyway, which meant bringing local Iraqis onto our base and using them as we could. And, you know, when you go back in time, I mean, here in the United States, it was the same way, but they literally had no clue what safety was about. I mean, I've been doing it for quite a few years by then. So I just assumed that, hey, everybody in the world is where we're at. Um, and they're not. Absolutely not. But what I did learn that we're all people, you know, and at the end of the day, we all love, we all hurt, you know, we we, we all laugh, we all cry. Uh, no, no matter what your your background is, you know, there's some some truths to all of that. And I found, we figured out that there is a way, no matter where the culture is, to evolve that culture over time. But there are certain, I call them habits, things that, that you have to do. Um, and, and so it started there. It started in Iraq. Uh, we, you know, obviously I was never able to implement all of them, but we started implementing some of them. And we saw major change. So I've started writing things down. Okay. Uh, before we get into the specifics of the book, just a, a quick question. How's it going so far? How's it been received? What kind of feedback? <laughs> David, I'll be honest with you, man. I, I, um, I, it's, it's more than I could have ever dreamed. It truly is. And it's, it's the most humbling experience I've ever had. Um, I, I was telling a lot of friends and colleagues and people that I knew would buy the book, you know, wait till it hits Amazon. Um, I'll, you know, we, after the first couple of weeks, we can buy it wherever you want to buy it, but just wait till it hits Amazon um, and, and you know, get your, get your copy from there. And so they did. And I've been, you know, between the IP conferences and the list of other places that I've been speaking, I've been basically saying the same thing. People wanted a copy of the book then, well, they weren't out yet. So I said, just It'll be out on Amazon. I'll let everybody know via social media or tech. Uh, a week ago yesterday, I was um, it, I was here in Covington, Louisiana, and I saw that Amazon it, it dropped on Amazon. So I, I sent a few messages out uh, via social media and via text. I said, hey, guys, it's there. 
Ready, set, go. Go get it. Uh, in 30 minutes, it sold so many copies that the um, Amazon algorithm picked it up as an error or a mistake, and it pulled, they pulled the book. They snatched it off the website, and now I've got people messaging me saying, it's not there. What happened? <laughs> I don't know. I have no clue. Long story short, it was their algorithm. They, they, they thought it was, you know, something was wrong. Uh, it took me two days to get it back up. So that was Thursday of last week. Thursday night, I had to take a red-eye flight to Austin, Texas. And um, I woke up early the next morning to get ready for a keynote address. And I looked on Amazon, and it was the number one new release on Amazon Friday morning. So uh, it's, you know, and then with the uh, feedback that you get through Amazon and other places too, you know, people email me or text me or whatever a lot of times, but, um, and, and this is a God's honest true story. It's very uh, personal, but I, uh, two days ago, I, I had to stop at Sam's and pump some gas in, into my truck. And while I was standing there, I, I went up, you know, sat in the cab and I'm scrolling through, you know, Facebook, whatever. And I said, let me go see how the book's doing. And I saw, you know, quite a few more um, feedback things, right? So I started reading them, David, and uh, it, it literally brought me to tears. And I, I, there I am, I'm, I'm standing outside the door of the truck, you know, with, and I'm, I'm in full tears. And I, I didn't realize it, but people were staring at me. And I'm, I'm not, one. Well, I'm a very unemotional person. And um, so I, I had to get back in the truck and finish my boohooing. Uh, it was it was that humbling though uh, to see the things that people were saying about it. Yeah, first of all, congratulations on that. That's awesome. Uh, second of all, don't feel bad. You see a lot of people. I think it has more to do with gas prices than anything. Crying at pumps. <laughs> That's probably, you probably weren't the only one. I, I, I didn't think about that. That's probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's get into the specifics of the book a little bit. And uh, obviously, I don't want to necessarily repeat what's in it, but but I want to talk about your thoughts on a couple of things. Um, and really I want to, start, you'll laugh the way I phrase this question, but I want, I want to start with habit one, six and seven okay. and how they relate to each other. Okay? okay. Uh, and because I think it's really important for everyone to, to think about, first of all, Heinrich's research, what it means to us, what we've done with it. Second of all, BBS and where it originated and what's valuable about it, what's worked, what hasn't. And then really the question that I, I want you to focus on along those, and I hope you see where I'm going with the relationship between one, six and seven. So incident rates have come down very significantly over yep. call it the last 20 years, right? Yep. Fatalities have not. And so basically my question is why? All right. So in, in this, I, I'm going to be honest with everybody. I, uh, I, I started doing safety in the nineties and uh, it was early 90s or late 80s, early 90s is when behavior-based safety became a thing. Uh, it was a buzzword, you know, uh, but BBS, that, that was the thing. And, um, you know, Ford Motor Company was the first company to actually put one into place. Um, and it was, again, it was based off the Heinrich Triangle. And it even adopted a name called the Ford Triangle uh, because of Ford Motor Company. Well, um, the first time it was ever put out uh, and widely utilized and sold for profit was when DuPont did it. Uh, and it was called the DuPont Stop Program. And it was a behavior-based box set that you buy with all these 
VHS tapes in it, and it teaches you all these different sections of how to do a behavior-based program. Um, so, yeah, um, Mr. Heinrich, H.W. Heinrich, was a um, an insurance investigator back in the 30s. Now, you have to think about something. He, his, his research shows, and it does show, that 88% um, of all accidents are due to unsafe acts. And we all bought that. Because it was, it, but the, what I didn't know, and, and I, I learned through the research of this book is um, that data has never been able to been duplicated. They've never, there have been many people try to duplicate that data and it can't be done. So that, that raised some questions for me. Well, you know, I, I don't know, you know, it, it should have been able to be duplicated and it wasn't. Well, so I started looking into it and, and you have to remember, we're talking about people, right? So. An insurance investigator back in the early 30s, you got to remember what, what was going on in our country at the time. You know, you're talking about the Great Depression and jobs are hard to come by. And, you know, if I have a job, I'm just happy. Um, and you've got an insurance investigator that he goes through 12,000 closed accident cases. And he goes around the country interviewing people. Well, back in that time, in the early 30s, if you had an accident that was more than, you know, a cut on your finger or something, you probably got fired. You know, if it was something serious, uh, you know, broken leg, you, you can't work for a period of time, you, you were fired. And that was normal. That was, we did it all the time. So but Mr. Heinrich goes around and he's interviewing all these people. And the, the question that he gets to is, how did this accident happen? Well, what do you think they told him? You know, it's the 30s. If I tell them that it was the company's fault, I'm going to lose my job. If, if, if I take any blame here, then it's going to look bad on me. So, I mean, think about human nature. If today it's 2022 and if an insurance investigator comes to your site or to your company and talks to you about a specific accident, what are you probably going to tell them? We just had an accident on one of our sites. One of our subcontractors cut his finger and the uh, sub had to do a report and submit it to us. And guess whose fault it was? It was the employee's fault. He wasn't wearing his PPE. It was his fault, Your Honor. And, and that, that's what they did. So, you know, what, what do you expect them to say? So, yeah, 88% of them told him that it was the, the employee's fault. And so the basis of that Heinrich Triangle, which is the foundation for behavior-based safety, is flawed. That, that data is not correct. It could never be duplicated. And if you think about human nature, it, you can see why it's flawed. So in the beginning, it, it was flawed. Now, I'm not saying Mr. Heinrich did this, you know, on purpose or DuPont did it on purpose. No, I'm just saying that, you know, it, you get to dig into it a bit to, to really get the truth out of it. So there we go. We, we start uh, in the 90s uh, doing this behavior-based thing. And let's, let's, again, for those of you that were around in the 90s, I look, I was a BBS, you know, hardcore. I was out and I, I told them about the triangle and, and I acted like I had H.W. Heinrich's number in my phone. I was I was all about it. Right. Um, but what what would happen to all that? You know, what normally happened to all that data when I mean, some of you guys on this call did it. You walk out in the morning, do a safety meeting and, you know, you, you give two cards to this person and 
you know, one to this person, you kind of spread the cards out amongst the crews and, hey, guys, give me some observations today. And if they remembered to do them and they were actual observations, you'd get them back at the end of the day or the next morning. Then what? You know, I know what happened on my job sites. I would read them and they'd go into a box under my desk. And then at the end of the job, that box wouldn't trash. A lot of really good information probably got thrown away. It, we, we weren't tracking or trending this stuff. I mean, uh, it, it was years before we had a company. Oh, well, unless you were smart enough to figure out how to build an Excel spreadsheet that, that could do some of it. And I, I tried. Um, I'm, I'm still not that great with Excel. But beside the point, you know, I tried something. So here we are uh, you know, many years later. And like you said, David, you, you look at the trends, right? If you go back and you can pull this up yourself, don't take my word for it. Um, and you look at the business and labor statistics of accidents, all uh, incident rates for all industries, uh, and you look at that graph, and you can see from 1972 when they started collecting data, we had a, a, a 10 point, some 10.5, I think, was the average incident rate for all companies in the United States in 72. In 1990, it was an 8.9. So you're looking at, you know, that many years, and it went from a 10 point something to an 8.9, just, you know, what, a point and a half? But when behavior-based safety started in, in the early 90s, from, from 1990 to today, you can see it's almost a 45-degree line from on, on that line graph. of And now... The average incident rate is about a 2.3. And, well, obvious is behavior-based safety. That, that's what did it, right? And that's, that's where I got most of the uh, pushback is based off of that, that graph. They're like, you, you can see, this is when it started. And look at our incident rates. They, they, they correlate. They're, that's, that's why. Well, let's, let's think about this. And let, let's just be honest first. How many of us? have ever started a new project somewhere out in wherever, you know, backwoods something. Um, and one of the first thing you did was you went and bought a few dozen donuts and went down to the local clinic and met all the doctors and the nurses and the staff down there and gave them some donuts to get to know them. Because at some point, you're going to have to go down there and ask that doctor to, uh, hey, doc, can I... Um, you know, can, can, can you give it Tylenol instead of that, you know, painkiller? Or would you mind using a butterfly or something else other than those stitches? Or, you know, can you can you let him come back to work? You know, uh, and we'll, we'll find something for him to do. We've all done that. I, I was one of the best at it, I'll be honest. So why is it 2.5 roughly today? Is it because of behavior-based safety? Well, if that were true, that triangle, remember, it says there's, you know, for so many unsafe acts, there's so many first aids and all the way up to that one fatality. If that 2.8 were true, then the fatalities would drop. That's the basis of BBS. Go pull up the same information uh, over the last 20 years and see how many fatalities we're having. And that line on that line graph is almost flat, straight across. There were over just over 6,000 workplace fatalities in the United States 
20 years ago. 20 years later, there's 5,500 and blah, blah. You know, it's less than a thousand difference from 20 years ago to today. That I'm telling you, that line is almost straight across. And if it was BBS, if if we were stopping those unsafe acts, it just makes sense that the fatalities would come down too. That's what was supposed to happen, but it didn't. So that made me start asking more questions. Why is it a 2.8 or a 2.5, whatever? So I started thinking, um, okay, part of it is, yes, we, we had more people out there doing observations. So that, that did happen. But um, we, we, we learned to manage it. PPE's gotten better, right? Um, you know, policies and stuff have gotten better. I agree with that. But we have learned how to manage cases. Uh, we're about to do work for a very large company. I'm not going to say their name. Uh, in West Texas, and on the pre-qualification form, it asked me, "Have we? do we have a contract with a company to do incident case management? No, we don't, but I mean, that that's a thing. You know, the fact is, guys, that, that 2.8 or 2.5 is a false number. Um, so let's let's stop hurting people. And the way to do that is, first of all, let's let's start focusing on the things that are killing people. Um, that's that's the study. We there is a way, and I'm sure we'll get into that in a few minutes, to actually make it safe for your employees to fail, because they're going to fail. Um, it's human nature. We all make errors. We make them consistently, and errors are actually predictable. We we can predict how many errors you're going to make an hour. Why don't we figure that in to the process? Why don't we build enough capacity so that when you do fail, the incident still occurs, but you don't die. I mean, we, we've been doing this with fall protection for years and didn't even realize it. I mean, some of your companies say four foot, six foot, whatever the, the height is, but many of your companies say, if you go above this height, thou shalt wear a, a, a harness, a lanyard, and be tied on. You say that. Why? I mean, that's, are, are you, you plan on keeping them from falling? Is, is that what that's about? Because that harness isn't going to keep them from falling. I promise you that. What the harness does is it keeps them from landing, which is the worst case scenario. That's the anomaly. That's the, the one in, you know, however many that rarely, rarely ever happens. But when it does, it's a significant injury or fatality. And so we plan for that. And we built that into that system with fall protection. And I'm not advocating for more PPE. Please don't think that. But we can do the same with everything else. Build in the worst case scenario, allow them to fail, but not be significantly injured or killed. Interesting. Um, we'll, we'll get more into that concept for sure when we talk about focusing left and zero and stop the stuff that can kill you and whatnot. But before we go there, uh, logical place to start, let's talk habit one for a second. You'll love the way I phrase this question too, I'm sure. 
Uh, so tell us why nobody ever shows up to work naked and how that relates to safety. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, ah, all right. That's a mic drop moment. Okay. So the first time I ever heard this concept was I was in Iraq working for KBR. Some trainers came over. And, and so the, the way that I, I, I do this in the presentations, and some of you have probably seen this, um, I ask everybody, you know, is safety a priority with your company? And most of the time, everybody says, well, absolutely it is. I mean, if it's not, then, you know, I'm not doing my job. Or if it's not, I don't want to work for them. And I, you know, okay. Well, habit number one is stop making safety a priority. And, you know, a lot of you guys know what, what, what I mean by that, because, you know, if, if safety is a priority, uh, I mean, the definition of a priority allows it to change. You adjust priorities uh, depending on what you're trying to accomplish in that window of time. For example, and I use this example a lot, is in the morning. Every morning of my life, I wake up and the first thing I do is drink coffee. Um, I, I, when I was in the army, it was wake up, run, 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 you know, go, go. I hated it. I hated it then. I hate it now. I like to wake up slower. That's what I choose to do. So I, I wake up. If I need to be at work by, you know, eight o'clock or whatever, my alarm's probably going off at 4.30 to give myself plenty of time to wake up slow. And then, you know, after I drink enough coffee, right about to the point that I can start hearing colors. That's, you know, when I know I've got enough caffeine in my system and that's when I go get in the shower. There you go. Look, look, I, I, I got one here too, bro. I, <laughs> I, I, I like that uh, Yeti you got in your hand there, buddy. Oh, the CUSP? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Empirical bought those for you. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, thank you. I like it too. Yeah, we, we, we sponsored that. Anyway, anyway, that's awesome. So um, we all have our things we like to do in the morning when we wake up. You know, it's brush your teeth, take a shower, eat some breakfast. You know, David goes and works out every day. And then, you know, there, there's, a, you watch the news or I don't know, you make your list, whatever it is. And the, the story goes, okay, well, today when you leave work, the president or the CEO or whatever of your company comes in and says, hey, uh, you know, Joseph, listen to me, buddy. I need you here in the morning at, uh, you know, seven o'clock or eight o'clock, whatever it is. An extremely important meeting. I need you to be in that conference room. Please don't be late. All right, no problem, boss. Well, you go home tonight. You go and you set your alarm like you normally do for whatever time it is. And you accidentally hit PM instead of AM. Or maybe you don't hear the alarm or whatever. We've all overslept. Everybody here has. You oversleep tomorrow morning. And when you open your eyes, uh, you've got a 30-minute drive ahead of you. And you've got, you know, 37 minutes to be in the office. You have seven minutes to be out the door. Did your priorities just change? Well, absolutely. I mean, you're still going to fry that bacon and have some eggs and all. No, of course not. Uh, what about that? The, the long shower that you like to do? Nope, that's not happening either. Uh, the workout, the news, the even with me, right? I don't have time for coffee. I'll get some later when I get to where I got to go. You're going to get your butt done. You're going to get in that vehicle and you're going to start driving. We all do. We all would. I'd be willing to bet you that everybody on this call would break a couple of safety rules on your drive there. We would, right? The speed limit says 65, David. How fast are you going to drive, though? I know me. I'm, I'm about 77 
because I know they're not going to write me a ticket for that. Um, and I might go faster than that, right? I always stop at this stop sign every day, but I don't have time today. We would do that. We've all done it. But there is one thing that we'll all agree on, that no matter what happens, you will not leave your home before you do this. And, you know, I hear things like, oh, get my phone. Well, some people don't have phones, and I forgot my phone a few times. You will never leave without doing this. And like David said, have you ever been so late for something that you showed up naked? No. I mean, that, that just sounds funny to us. The fact is, here in the United States, people die in house fires every year because they want to get dressed before they leave a burning building. Because getting dressed is not a priority. Getting dressed is a value. And values don't change. Values will stay the same. And some of you are saying, oh, Rod, that's just a play on words. Well, it's not. And, and here, here's why it's not. You have to remember what we're trying to accomplish here. We are in the first habit, the first step of creating a, a different, sustainable safety culture. In order for your employees, in order for everyone to understand that safety is just built into who we are. It's just how we do business. Take it off of your priority list. Don't refer to it as a priority. It's a value that is just part of the DNA of your company. And when you, that's, that's number one. And, and when, when you get there, when it truly is, it's, it's you, you, this is being talked about at all levels of your company, how safety is a value, um, then, then you can move on to habit two from there. Very good. Very good. Um, so uh, since you said move on to habit two, I'm actually going to skip habit two and I'm going to have it through. I hope we have time to come back and have it to Yeah, of course. But uh, it's worth saying you got to make it safe for people to, to share concerns and report mm -hmm. things for sure. But this concept of operational ownership of safety, and I feel like that's a concept that's relatively new to a lot of people. I think most people I talk to agree with it for the most part. People tend to struggle with what it really looks like and how to do it. So, you know, I guess two two part question there. Number one, what is operational ownership of safety? And number two, what does that actually look like? And are we talking about eliminating the safety department completely? What what does it mean? No. Okay. So, remember this: value driven operationally based, okay? So the, the program, your safety system, your safety program, whatever you guys call it, is driven, it's, it's driven by values, right? Safety is a value, but it's operationally based. Now, what that means is, um, okay, I'll, I'll tell you this, true stories, right? Back in the day, <clears throat> when I first started in safety, um, I was with a scaffold company and I was working at a plant called Morgan Chemical in St. Gabriel, Louisiana. Nastiest plant, I still to this day, I think I've ever been in. Um, they had caustic leaking out of pipes and this black carbon unit. And I'd go home every day with burn holes in my shirt and black stuff around my nose. And, you know, it, it, it was bad. Um, and we had scaffold builders out there building scaffolds and this stuff. And I was told that my job was to go out there and find them doing stuff wrong. All right, off I go. Hey, I had just literally six months before this come off a of patrol. I was a patrol officer. I was good at enforcing rules. 
right? I didn't have a gun anymore, but I had that shiny white hard hat that was just as powerful, right? I said, I got my shiny white hard hat on. And what I figured out was that when I would start walking up, I would start hearing like it sounded like I was in a jungle. Right? Making all these weird noises. I'm like, what on earth is going on? Well, come to find out, and you all know what I'm getting at here. They were letting everybody know you were there. So I got smart, right? Because I, I, I was just about to become a detective when I was on patrol, when I left and went back home, and I learned how to get sneaky, right? So I went and bought me a blue hard hat just like theirs and started wearing that one out there where they couldn't see me coming then. And I would. I'd hide behind poles and stuff and look around at them, and, and I, I did it all. Well, I became a safety cop is what I did. And I thought that's what I was supposed to do. That's what I was taught. That's what I was told. And you've all been told the same thing at some point in your career. Get out there and fix it. Get out there and uh, find doing something wrong. Or better than that, <clears throat> how many of you have ever been told that you are in charge of all things PPE? Right? If, if it's a safety harness, right? It has safety in the name. Their safety glasses, their safety toed boots, anything to do with PPE, that's your responsibility, safety guy, safety gal. That connects over there, that's your domain. Make sure that everybody has good safety equipment and you keep track of it and you order it when it needs to be done. Again, I thought that was my job. So I did it and I did it as best I could. That's not what we're supposed to do, you know. For many years, the, the safety person on the job was either the youngest person on the job that just got there or the oldest person on the job that was had been doing it so long that they could barely walk. Uh, they were appointed as a safety professional. Hey, you're you're in charge of safety from now on. All right, good. It wasn't, it, it wasn't, it's been a while now, but it was a long time before our profession was actually viewed as a profession. This was just something that they had to do. And they would put anybody over safety because safety is everybody's job, right? So anybody can do it, right? That, that's not true. You know, we, we need to be viewed more like an attorney than, you know, a, a ruling portion, right? Um, we know, I mean, Okay, if, if you want to write a will or get divorced or whatever it might be, you know, a criminal case, DUI, whatever it is, did you know you can represent yourself? You absolutely can. You can write your own divorce papers. You can write your own, anything to file with the courts. You have the legal right to do that yourself. Why don't you? Because the attorney understands the law. And OSHA is a law. We as safety professionals, know what that law is. And we also get to be psychiatrists at the same time, right? We, we need to understand the, uh, the human side of things and why people do what they do. So there, there's a lot of mixture to it, but it is a, it's an actual profession. So when we get to the point that we can make it so the safety professionals monitor, audit, review, and advise, that's all we're supposed to do. Yes, we will write your programs for you. Absolutely will. That's what we should do because we need to make sure they're compliant with whatever 
the current thing is. But why is it the safety department's job to enforce a policy? That's 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 operations job. That's not ours. It's this this policy is in place to protect your employees. You should be the one out there correcting. Not that if I don't see it, I'm not going to say something. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that should have been corrected long before I got there. How many of you on this call right now have done that? Walked out to a site, saw something. I don't know. I'm going to make something up. Um, somebody is uh, not wearing gloves. And there's five people standing around and watching. Why didn't somebody say something? They saw the same thing I saw. Right? Because they, it, it, it gets to the point that it's expected that's the safety person's job. No, I beg to differ. When you make it an operational-based program, um, I, oh, another thing. I had the authority to fire people, David. I did. They, they told me, you go out there, if you, if, if this is a scaffold company, right? If they're not tired off, you fire their A-word. Yeah. Well, I fired some too, buddy. I've had, I'm a pretty big fella, but uh, some of them little squirmy scaffold builders like to scrap. And um, I mean, I, I might be big, but I don't like to fight. So uh, I, I, I do it, you know, from a distance. But yeah, I, I fired a few of them because I thought that was my job. But looking back on the way we did safety back then, that, that's extremely counterproductive. And when we can get to the point that we understand that safety is just another uh, process, just like every other operationally based process. And it's the operation side that should enforce it uh, and enthusiastically support it. Um, if it was anything else to do with their job, they would. And here at our company, we, we have it that way. As a matter of fact, David, <clears throat> just recently we're, we're rolling out a um, a SIF PSIF precursor audit, and usually, guys, when 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 a, when a, a new safety process or a new safety initiative starts, the safety department rolls it out. Not anymore. Not not here. Um, yes, we develop it. Yes, I trained all of the uh, the project managers, program managers, and our director of operation trained them all on. It. Uh, we have a thing called the bow tie. <clears throat> we balance the bow tie. Anyway, um, and that's part of the process. I taught it to them. Operations is rolling it out. It's it's theirs, right? Yes, it has to do with safety, but they roll it out. And I'm going to tell you what, it has taken on like wildfire. Uh, you know, when, when I first started here, I rolled out all of this new safety initiative near misreporting, blah, 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 whatever, right? And man, it to get freaking traction, that was that was like pulling teeth. Um, but now that I have the operations group over here, I develop it. I mean, my, my department, we develop it all, right? And we advise them, teach them, and they go roll it out. That's how it. it works well. Yeah, love it. Uh, I call it the safety paradox where, you know, if everybody's responsible for safety in a vague way, who actually does something? Yeah. And then in that environment, when we have the safety departments, it, it's always somebody else's job. Exactly. And, and we're all doing it in theory, but nobody's actually doing it. So uh, there's, there's a lot of stuff out there that support operational ownership of safety 
and, and that can look different ways to different folks. So um, switching gears, I, I love the concept of focus left to zero. Uh, okay. I feel like we've kind of gotten the whole reactive, proactive thing has become those buzzwords nobody wants to hear anymore. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so explain what what you mean when you say focus left and zero. And if you don't mind, too, and I hope you don't mind me asking this, but let's talk a little bit about the value of what's right of zero as well, because I think that's another thing folks have started to do. <laughs> Pro-action is good. Reaction is bad. In broad terms, left of zero is good. Right of zero is bad. And I think there's value both. Certainly we'll want to focus left of zero, but. Talk about that if you don't mind. And, and the reason I went with you know with the left of zero concept. So so the idea behind left of zero is if you if you look at a timeline, right, and zero is right in the middle. Everything on this side of zero, it's already happened. You, you can't change the path. Everything on this side of zero is what we're going to do, right? And the idea, let, let's think about human nature again for a second. Let's say you are a uh, in high school, you start running, right? You're you're a you're a, a track star in high school. You break all the state records, you're you know, all state, you get a full ride scholarship to any school other than Alabama, because they, they're terrible and we don't like Alabama here in Louisiana. So you, you go somewhere else and uh, sorry if you're Alabama fan, somebody's about to unmute, watch this. Uh, but anyway, so that you, you you go to college on a full ride scholarship and you break every record at that school and then the next thing you know you're in the olympics you made the olympic team you made the olympic tryouts there you are you're standing there with your your country colors on with a stadium full of people and they're they're screaming and yelling and you know you get down in the starting blocks where are you focused right now and i hear a lot of people say well i'm focused on the finish line it's a it's a hundred meter sprint i'm focused on that Finish line down there. Okay. Well, I'm focused on the sound of the gun going off to tell me to start. Okay. If you ask, though, a professional runner, when they're down in the blocks, where are they focused? They'll tell you 10 meters beyond that finish line. Because human nature is to slow down right before you get to zero, right before you get to the finish line. Matter of fact, Next time you're going up a flight of stairs, be sure to hold the handrail on your way up. Okay, don't don't slip and say Rod told you to do something, but hold the handrail and trot slowly, trot up the stairs, and watch what you instinctively do. Two steps before the top, you will slow down. It's it's instinct. So the left of zero concept means we 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 live over here. But we're focusing on 10 meters beyond the finish line. Beyond the finish line are the things that we have control of, the things that we can do, right? And for years, it was, uh, you know, leading indicators and lagging indicators. And, you know, there, there is absolute benefit to using your lagging indicators to create things and to make things better. I'm not taking away from them. As a matter of fact, most of us, if you're in the construction world, you're graded on those lagging indicators. What what what's your recordable rate? What's your EMR? What's your, you know, when you fill out a pre-qualification form, is that not what you're telling everybody? That those are all lagging indicators. I can't control that. So 
the on on the left of zero is um, the leading indicators, right? And we've all been told this before, and I'm gonna be very blunt and honest about this. I had no freaking idea what it meant. I didn't. I, I, I it just sounded really cool, you know. Uh, hey Rod, we need you to focus on the leading indicators, not the lagging indicators. Okay, you know, and that's what I did. I wish that's what I told them I was doing. Yeah, I'm being proactive. Yay, you know, but that, that's a bunch of crap. No, I wasn't. I had I had no idea what that even meant. As a matter of fact, you know, again, I'm not I'm not saying tell me what are some leading indicators. I don't mean that. Somebody tell me, and, and through lots of research and study, I figured it out, but what does that even mean? Hey, David, go out there on the job site and focus on the leading indicators. How, <laughs> how the hell do you do that? Let, let me explain. If we go back to... Uh, one of the earlier habits of, you know, making it safe for people to report things and so on. Um, let's hypothetically say that you were able to do that. You were able to make it safe and people reported everything. Now, we never tell the, the crews out there, your line crews or whatever, hey, look, I don't, I don't want to know about all the little stuff. You know, you know if, 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 if there's enough blood, if the bone's completely broken, and if the damage is enough to the equipment, you got to tell me then. Everything else, shh, I don't even want to know about. We don't tell them that. But what's the perception? Go out and ask them. If you don't know, I'll share it with you. Okay? Because I promise you, most more times than not, <clears throat> the perception is do what you have to do to get this job done. And unless it's really bad, keep your darn mouth shut. Even though we, we tell them we want something else, that's not the perception of the people. So let's hypothetically say that you could actually get them, it, you know, just, just like a light switch to start tomorrow reporting everything, every near miss. <clears throat> because if we're having, excuse me, <clears throat> if we're having about 2,500 errors per day per crew. That's a five-man crew working 10 hours. Um, I promise you one of those is probably a near miss or a good catch or something. They're not all just, you know, you know, little things. Some, something happened. And we're, we're not being told. We, we don't know about it. We are now. Matter of fact, my, my system is going crazy. But when you get to that point that you actually are getting that data, of all of the little things, the, the near misses, the great catches, the almost slip, trip, and falls, the minor slip, trips, and falls. I didn't call the first aid. I just, you know, slipped. Or, you know, I, I didn't hurt myself, but, you know, this is wrong. Or whatever. And you put that into a system. you got to be able to track and trend it or it doesn't work. You put it into a system so you can see it. And over the period of, let's just say, a couple of weeks, you get 10 near misses and good catches, and they all have to do with hands. Hypothetical. Gloves, wrong gloves, uh, missed, you know, uh, gloves not fitting correctly, uh, hands and pinch points, just all this stuff. And you put it into a system. And what you do at the end of that period of time, you put it in a graph and you can see the line for hand injuries start to tick up. When you see that line start to go up like that, you're about to have a hand injury. 
I don't know where and I don't know when, but I promise you, you're about to have a hand injury. When you see that happen, now you can focus on leading indicators, okay? Now you can start doing the things that are proactive to stop this hand injury from happening. But without the one, two, and three habits in place first, habit four doesn't work. The book was written sequentially. One, two, three, four have to be done in order. Five, six, and seven can be done either in conjunction with or you know at, at your leisure kind of thing. And habit eight is a habit that helps you um, get all the other ones in place. Okay, so um, the, the left of zero means get all the, the, the first three in place. And when you see that line start to tick up on your graph from the, the near miss reporting and the minor incident reporting and all that stuff, act now. And when you do, guess what happens in the next week? That line comes right back down again. I mean, if it's hand injuries, send out pictures and posters and new gloves and do safety meetings and trainings and all the stuff you would do if there had been an accident, right? Pre-accident investigation, right? So go do all the stuff you would have done had there been an accident and watch that line come back down. You just, you were able to see into the future and you avoided the accident. And that's, that's, that's fact. I'm not making that up. That is a fact. So that's what left of zero means. It's a new way to think about focusing on leading indicators. Now, lagging indicators have value, right? It, it, um, there is some truth to that. Um, do we need to just forget about them? Of course not. Of course not. Um, but if we can focus more time on the first three habits, now focus left of zero and focus on those leading indicators, you will start stopping accidents before they happen. Very good. So focus on what you can control. And Absolutely. I'm sure in your answer to that about the sequential nature of the book, you really appreciate the way I'm jumping from half. Oh, no, 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 not at all, not at all. No. Well, good, because I'm not gonna stop. Um, <laughs> we got about 10 minutes left, but uh, in, in thinking about what you can control, I want you to comment briefly on habit eight, because Honestly, when I first opened the book, and obviously table of contents, it, you know, all of it made sense. And I'm like, yes, 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 love it, love it, love it. And I get to have it eight, and I'm like, dang it, Rod was doing good, now he's lost his mind. <laughs> so stop trying to influence everyone. Yes. Uh, because obviously when we talk about safety and leadership and whatever, influence over authority and influence is a big word that I love. Yeah. And I was like, dang it, Rod, you just, you screwed your whole book up. You know, I hadn't read the chapter yet. I read the chapter, I'm with you. But just, you know, briefly explain that. All right, so when you're implementing all of these different, the, the, the first four and then the, the you know, uh, five, six, and seven, um, if you go into this with a shotgun effect and you just start trying to, you know, okay, everybody, we're going to start making safety a priority and you just, or right, we're going to stop doing that, we're going to make it a value, or okay, guys, we're going to start focusing left of zero, look, look, look. If you do that approach and it's a shotgun effect and you're just trying to influence everybody, the fact is you'll ultimately influence nobody. That's that's the truth. Um, if you're trying to let let's say you're trying to influence the leadership of your company to 
buy into the eight habits or may, maybe it's not the eight habits. Maybe it's, you know what, we, we need a tracking system and it's going to cost some money. You know, whatever it is that you're trying to influence someone to do. Um, stop trying to influence everybody. I, I, I also call this find the mascot. When I when I, I built wind turbines for a long time with a company called Siemens. And when Siemens first started their wind division, they brought a bunch of Danish employees over. We all had a Danish shadow. Um, but the Danish rules were way different than our rules, way different. So I, I, I didn't, you know, I, I could tell the, the Americans to do this, but the Danes weren't doing it. They weren't having it. They don't do that in their country. Yeah, forget all that. Well, how, how can I have half the site doing things the right way and the other half not? Because everything's going to start leaning the wrong way, I promise. So what I did one day, and, and I did it by accident, I was standing back watching a group of these Danes talk. Uh, I had started learning some Danish, so I knew a little bit of what they were saying. And sure enough, I found the mascot. He, he or she is always the one that draws the most attention. He or she is the one that maybe an alpha personality, maybe not. They're usually funny. They're usually the, they're, they're the one that everybody else listens to. And every family has a mascot. Every company has a mascot. Every job site, every crew, um, every group of people has a mascot. And some of them have multiples. If you find the mascot, you only have to convince them that it's the right thing to do. They'll convince everybody else for you. So I tried it, and it absolutely worked. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. Like I said, that, uh, it, it makes sense. And uh, we don't have enough time to talk about it now, but just for the, the listener's benefit, there's a, a good section on there, too, in how to lead up. And I know that's something a lot of people struggle with there in Habit 8. We didn't really get a chance to talk about uh, Habit 2 as I continue to jump around all over the place. But it, it's definitely worth us taking a minute, let's call it, and make it safe for people to raise concerns. This whole concept of psychological safety is new to a lot of people. Uh, what does that mean? Just, okay, What what is the perception right now? You know, because the perception, like I said earlier, is many places that they don't really want us to tell them about all this. And think about it. We were all told for years, if a near miss occurs, treat it just like an accident. That's what we've been told. Go out and investigate it just like an accident. Stop the job, take the statements, take the pictures, write it up as though it were an accident, because that's how we're going to learn. Well, I beg to differ. If, you, if there's a near miss and it gets reported and you go out and you do all that, shutting jobs down, taking pictures and statements and all that stuff, when the next near miss happens, they are not going to tell you about it. All right? They're, they don't want all that bad publicity. They don't. So, you know, how, how you respond to that matters. Now, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a simple concept to think about, but that's probably one of the hardest ones to implement. Because you have to build trust, you have to, and it has to be longevity. Because you got to understand when this first, if you can get operations to implement it all, you're good. But if, if you are the one having to implement it, it's it's an it, it's the flavor of the freaking month, man. It's more of that crap that that safety department wants me to do. That's what they're thinking, all right. And if, if you can, but if you can get them to truly know in their heart, guys, it really is safe. We're not going to blame you then you you that's that's where you need to be so that that's what it is david it's about 
truly making it say, understand the current perception of what, what they think is and change that perception to where they know, you know what? William really does want me to, you know, uh, report this. Very good, very good. So uh, let me take a moment just to thank all the listeners for being here uh, and, and and to really take a moment to thank you, Rod, for being here. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it and how much I've been looking forward to this. And the book didn't let me down. You hadn't let me down. Uh, some good stuff in there. Uh, and the way I like to close it, because, you know, I love to put people on the spot. So your elevator pitch, right? We're on the seventh floor right now on an elevator. And you, I just found out you wrote a book. Convince me before we get to the first floor that I should buy it. And then make sure everybody knows how. You know, it, it took a long time and a lot of experience and a whole lot of mistakes to, to write this. Um, I, I honestly just want to help you help others, help everyone not make the same mistakes I did. Um, this book, if, you know, if, if, if you read it, um, I'll, I'll gladly, we can talk more if there's something to understand, but it, it will absolutely change the way that we view and do safety. Remember, if you, if you leave this with nothing else other than this, please remember this. Safety is not the absence of accidents. Safety is the presence of capacity. We have to build capacity into our system to allow our employees to fail. And this book helps teach you how to do some of that. Absolutely true. Capacity. Um, I was listening to Todd Conklin talk about that subject this morning. Um, so if, if somebody hadn't gotten it already, where, where can they get the book? Uh, Amazon, obviously, you mentioned. Am Amazon is there. Uh, if you're Prime member, it's free shipping right now. Um, you can, if you want... Um, you can go to, I have a website, the eight habits, the number eight, www.thenumber8habits.com. You can buy it off of there. Uh, the Kindle version's out, the Nook version's out. So there, there's a lot of places you can get it. Um, but yeah, Am Amazon is, is the one that's selling the most copies right now. All right. Well, again, thanks everybody for being here, Rob. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, to everybody, I look forward to seeing you in, in future sessions of this, by the way. Uh, not next month, but two months from now, I don't know if you can see it there because of the light. But similar to this, Ken Sheridan wrote a book called No Compromise. And Ken's going to be with us. What month is it right now? September? Yeah. In November uh, for the Frontline Fundamentals. So be sure if you get the opportunity to check that book out and uh, come listen to what Ken has to say about his book. Um, Rod, just thank you again so much. Uh, everybody stay safe, be well, and we'll look forward to seeing you in future IPI events. Thank you so much, guys.